The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. Ian has impressed me with his knowledge of pop music and folk music as he's brought in all of these various um, little quotes illustrating his points. Um, My wife Caroline has kind of a secret vice is that she likes country music. And actually, if you want to learn lessons about adultery, country music is a pretty good place to go. And uh, a week ago, we were traveling through Montana and Alberta, and we were listening to country music on the radio, and the only time I hear it is when I'm traveling with my wife. I heard a song I'd never heard before. It, it begins, well, I've got a friend who's got a good life. He's got two pretty children and a real nice wife. Yet he never seems quite satisfied. I said, I know what's on your mind, but you'd better think about it before you cross that line. The grass ain't always greener on the other side. Do what you want. Do what you wish. It's your life. But remember this, there's bound to be some consequences sneaking under other fences. Then what? What you going to do when the new wears off and the old shines through? And it ain't really love and it ain't really lust. You ain't anybody anybody's going to trust. Then what? Where are you going to run when you can't turn back from the bridges you burn? And fate can't wait to kick you in the butt. Then what? Oh, then what? Now, I guess in our circles, we would say that's a common grace understanding uh, that even an unbeliever would have that adultery, sexual sin within marriage is devastating. It even brings out the point that it's the trust that is broken that is more destructive than the sexual acts which are committed. And this is something which is so widespread. I imagine some of you are here. I've already had one person saying, I'm dealing with a case like this right now. Probably several of you are. If you're a church leader, it's going to be something that's just going to happen from time to time within your church. I actually had a situation one time uh, where I was coming back from a conference, and as I'm on my way back from the airport, I get a call, and there's a situation going on, and somebody has to meet with me that night. I'm exhausted coming from the East Coast, and there's a situation of a broken marriage because of infidelity. The next morning, I get a call from a second broken marriage uh, because of marital infidelity. And at IBCD, the counseling that we do on Monday nights, a large percentage of my cases, even in the last couple of years, have been sexual sin damaging marriage. And uh, a benefit that should come to this, come from this potentially, is that when you see the harm and the pain and the misery that comes, it should be like an inoculation to protect you from ever thinking about doing this. And yet, one of the most shocking experiences I've had is a friend who had been a counselor and a pastor, and we would actually talk about cases in which we would counsel people in cases of sexual infidelity, and it was uncovered that he himself, though he had counseled many people in that situation, had also fallen into the very same sin. So, There's no surefire inoculation but to walk closely with God, but to walk in the Spirit so you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. 
There, however, is hope in that not only does the Word of God sufficiently instruct you as a counselor and the, the guilty party, the relatively innocent party, but the Word of God is sufficient to provide great help, comfort, and even power to heal and to restore. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to man. That's one thing we can tell both people in the couple is that what you are experiencing, it may seem like nobody else has gone through this, but many others have. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. And so as you look to the Lord... Uh, you've failed, and even in that, and you're tempted to despair, you're tempted to give up, you're tempted to take your life, you're tempted to go off with this other person. As you turn to the Lord, you can resist that, or you've been betrayed, and again, how can life go on, and how can you endure? God will be with you, He will help you. And when you enter into the situation as a counselor, there's some things that need to happen right away. And you know, typically what's happening is a couple, they may come in or you may go to their home, but you learn something like this has happened. Maybe one has come to you and they've confessed to you what they've done or the other one comes to you and tells you their spouse has done wrong. But there are very important things in the very beginning, in a first session, which need to be accomplished very quickly. And one is to give hope. I actually, when preparing this talk, I wrote a few people whom I had counseled through these situations and couples where now their marriages are restored and they're continuing and they're doing well. I said, what were the most important things that helped you? And an answer I got was building hope in the very first session. Because when people come in and this has happened, there is a, a sense of hopelessness typically on the part of each. Uh, the one who has been betrayed can never imagine being able to trust him or her again. Uh, they can't imagine what life could be like. And, and even the one who has sinned, it's like the thing they've been hiding for a long time has been uncovered, and they just they can't imagine being forgiven. They can't imagine things getting better. That God is able... And, and ultimately, your hope has to be in God and not in the other person. That's the other aspect of it. Jeremiah 17, you know, verses 5, don't trust in men or make the flesh your strength, or you'll be like a bush in the desert. If you trust in God, you'll be like the tree planted by rivers of water. Your hope is not that your spouse will repent and will come back to you, or your hope is not even that your spouse will forgive you. I can't make those things happen. Your hope is that as you trust in God, He will sustain you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Uh, and, and He will be with you through this. He will strengthen you. He is what you need more than anything else. Um, as you speak to the, and I'll say to the victim or the innocent party now, I realize there is no innocent party in the sense we're all sinners. And very often the person who's been sinned against, their spouse has committed adultery or has been involved in other sexual sin, uh, sometimes they'll feel some guilt, realizing, well, it's, I've not been attentive enough to my marriage. I've been so consumed with my career or my friends or my kids. But, you know, relatively innocent party, the person who hasn't, you know, committed open sexual sin. Um, I'll often take them to Galatians 6, verse 1, right in the beginning. What does that say? If someone is caught in any trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore him gently, looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And just to say to the innocent party, I know you've been sinned against terribly. I know that the pain of this, the shock of this has to be absolutely overwhelming. But you want to see this from God's perspective. And first of all, as you look at Galatians 6.1, I have them read it out loud. Against whom has he sinned? If anyone is caught in any trespass, against whom is a trespass? It's against God. And what's broken here is not primarily your marriage. What he has done indicates his relationship with God is broken. And that's the big issue here. And what is your role? You who are spiritual, restore. And that what God has called you to do, and this may be the biggest opportunity you have in your entire life to do for someone else what Christ has done for you, is to be used as an instrument in their restoration, not just to you and your marriage, but in their restoration to God in a relationship that is horribly broken as the sexual sin is evidence. And so your temptation is you want to be a judge. And I tell you, take off your judge's hat. Your job is to be a doctor. You're to be a healer. Restore, mend, not judge and destroy. Vengeance belongs to God, Romans 12. Don't take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. And so another aspect of it is... Are you open to reckons? Are you, are you open to, to seeing what God may do? But I don't try to get a commitment like, okay, session number one, we're all going to be back together. Everything's going to be fine in six weeks. Just stick with it. In the beginning, it's hard for them to imagine where things will go. It's hard to imagine things getting better. It's just hard adjusting to what's happened. Sometimes the one who's been sinned against cannot imagine ever letting him or her back into their life. And my approach is often just, are you willing to work with us for a while to see what God may do? Um, No commitments. And, you know, if adultery has taken place, we'll look at Matthew 19, Matthew 5. I realize Jesus says that adultery can be grounds for divorce. And I'm not taking that away from you. Now, I know some may not agree with that. That's another session for another day or... But you, know, you believe you have grounds. I'm not going to take that away from you, but, but, but Jesus does not require you to divorce. And I'm not asking you to make a decision whether to take him back or not. I'm asking you to see if God might work in him to bring about two repentance, and if God might work in you to give you the grace to forgive him as you have been forgiven. Another analogy I'll use is the story of the prodigal son from the Gospel of Luke, is that how do you look at your brother or your sister who has been caught by sin? And and the picture I want to put in your mind is it's like sin has like the robber beaten them, left them bloody by the road. And you could say, what were you doing traveling alone down that road? And of course, what were you doing falling into this kind of sin? But your job is to be like the Good Samaritan to try to bring the healing oil of the gospel to, again, this person, not just to fix your relationship, but they're totally broken in their relationship with God and to be, if God allows it, to be used in an instrument of their healing. 
uh, when speaking to the guilty party early on, for you to have gotten into the position you've gotten yourself into, you've had to lie to yourself, you've had to lie to others, and you've had to harden your heart against God. And usually when these things come open, come into the open, people get caught. And that's actually an important thing to find out in the data gathering. Uh, was this person caught or did they confess? Um, 90% or more are caught. Usually the ones who confess, confess because they think they're about to get caught. Uh, the numbers, was it 32, 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. Um, now, there's even hope in the Scriptures in that people who are caught can still be brought to repentance. Uh, David, in 2 Samuel 12, did not repent on his own. He was busted. The prophet came and rebuked him, and then through that rebuke, God brought David to repentance. So even people who got caught can be brought to repentance and can be restored, and marriages can be restored. There, there's hope in that. Um, but, okay, you've been caught. You're kind of in shock. You probably have mixed feelings about this other relationship. Um, the analogy I'll use in my mind is like you have so hardened your heart. It's like ice. And real repentance is like melting this block of ice. You don't expect when someone's been caught in some sin, they've been hiding for weeks, months, or even years, that suddenly that heart is going to be supple and warm. Uh, when real repentance takes place, it often takes a while. And so what I'm asking you to do is not, we're going to fix it all tonight. But you're embarking on a journey of repentance that if God is pleased to bless that, as 2 Timothy 2 says, if God would grant you repentance, it's going to take a while. And right now you're going to have to embark on that journey, both of you, not based upon how you feel right now, which can be hopeless, but based upon faith in the Word of God and even the, the fear of God, if not right now a love for God, your heart has grown cold towards God, which is what's led you to do what you've done. And, and so what we need to do is just agree we're going to keep working on this. We're going to keep working it through, and it's going to take some time. But I also can give you hope, hope in God that He is sufficient, but I also can tell you I've had the joy of seeing God work in many wonderful situations that seem to be hopeless. Uh, we've had couples, um, in one case, I think they were separated for two years. And in January, they came back together again. And now they're restored as a family with their children, and they're doing well. And, and of course, the goal is, that's another thing, is that, well, I don't want things to go back to the way they were. You know, it's not like we want to get your marriage back to the way it was the day before somebody committed adultery. <laughs> Uh, there are probably lots of problems with marriage. What we want the marriage to, is to become more of what God wants that marriage to be as the result of this whole process, not just a restoration of the mediocrity that existed before that partially led to the fall, but to build this marriage into something which is truly God-honoring. And, and it's going to take time. Um, Likewise, both parties are going to have very strong emotions. Sometimes the innocent party is tempted to vent a lot of anger. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word come from your mouth, but only what is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And, and when you're being tempted to vent and you know, express your anger, 
Uh, that is not restoring Galatians 6.1. You, you've, you've, you've taken off your doctor hat and now you're playing the, the judge and you're bringing condemnation and the Bible doesn't give you the right to do that. And it's just going to make things worse. And so there has to be self-control. Uh, in the counseling session, I don't let people vent on each other. Uh, interruption is not always polite. It's often impolite. But if someone is murdering someone else with their tongue, I have the right and the duty even as a counselor to interrupt that and say, I know you're hurt, but that's not how God wants you to speak about this right now. And so we can understand those emotions. I mean, there's fear, what's going to become of me, jealousy, guilt, it's all my fault, you know, uh, revenge. I mean, I had one case where the wife found out about it, and the first thing she did is she got in her car and went over to the house of the woman and physically attacked her. Um, That was not a godly response to extraordinarily bad news. So you you want them to to slow down. You want them to, you realize and you can acknowledge they're experiencing many, many emotions, but you, you want them to live by faith. In Proverbs 3, trust in God with all of your heart. Do not lean in your own understanding. Uh, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. That the feelings you have and the desires you have and the impulses you have in the situation may be the wrong ones. Uh, another concern is the kind of counsel people get. Um, I had some, with some very dear friends of ours we've known for over 30 years, and none of these phone calls. I was actually running a marathon, and my phone is going off, so I waited till I got done. <laughs> And, but it's going, 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 going. Who's trying to reach me all this time? And it was some friends we've known for decades, uh, Christian friends. And it's the wife who says, you're going to hate to hear this, but named her husband, has been having an affair. And uh, it's just so sad, so overwhelming. But so slow down. And actually... As I got involved in that situation, I had the husband come down and spend a weekend with us, and he had been seeing a secular counselor, and the secular counselor said, look, you're almost 60 years old. If you're happier with this other woman, divorce your wife and at least be happy. That's the counsel he got. And there's a lot of ungodly counsel. You know, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. There is a world full of Oprah, Dear Abby, Dr. Phil, unbiblical garbage out there. The same thing can be happening with the uh, innocent party where she's got people who think they, they're, they've got her back and when they learn what's happened to her, and same thing, I've, where they're saying to her, you divorced that guy. You don't need to go to counseling. He's a bum. He's a loser. And I know a lawyer who can take him for everything he's got and leave him on the street. And And that ungodly so-called wisdom is going to be coming at them. And so they need to commit themselves to the wisdom of the Word of God and to be discerning in terms of the information they're getting and the counsel they're receiving. And then other things, just as they're getting started. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In James 1.15 to plead with God for wisdom. 
and, and part of the wisdom that James is talking about when he talks about don't be the double-minded man is that you would have a wholehearted pursuit of the wisdom of God. You would no longer be double-minded. Uh, that's what got you into this mess, was a double life and a double mind, but that God would help you to seek after His wisdom wholeheartedly, to trust that God has a purpose in this. Uh, we've, I think somebody already referenced in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Hope in God of what, what good He can do. And then very important, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, in all things we want to be pleasing to Him. Your goal in this situation has to be singularly that you would please God in how you act from this point on. Your goal can't be as the adulterer to get your wife back. Your goal can't be as the victim to get a certain kind of marriage out of it or you know, whatever you want. Your goal has to be simply, I want to please God. And you may do some things that are right and the other person does not cooperate. They do not change. You're not responsible for what they do. You're responsible. The attitude should be, I want to know what the Bible says and I want to, by the, the strength that God gives me to follow that and to see where that leads me um, and I can't know right now. You know, sometimes there's also just, they just want it to be resolved. Okay, I just, I can't live with the uncertainty. You're going to have to take it step by step. I've even seen cases where forgiveness has been granted too quickly. And it's kind of a strange thing to hear at a biblical counseling conference that forgiveness can be granted too quickly. But I was dealing with a case of a husband who actually was a former seminary student who was committing adultery for the third or fourth time. And uh, his church was trying to deal with it well. And suddenly I hear they're back together again. And I, talked to the, I was talking to the husband, and he says, you know, I know I'm not repentant. Uh, but she wanted me to come home. And I think... And she had the freedom to let him come home. She had the freedom to restore the marriage. But I think there was a lack of wisdom in the sense that he, he needed to go through a real process of repentance. But I think she just wanted this episode to be over and to move on without, without it really being dealt with in a thorough, faithful, and biblical way. Uh, the same thing can be true on the side of the guilty party. I just want to be forgiven. And I want to be restored. I want everything to be fine. Uh, and so people can move too fast, there is probably going to be a process of God working in two lives and working in them together, even in the best cases. And uh, in the best cases, it's, um, it's still hard. Uh, in the initial session, you want to find out what is the nature of the sexual sin. Uh, the Scripture you know, there's a simple definition of sexual sin. All sexual activity is to occur within marriage. Anything outside of marriage is sinful. And it takes various forms. And depending on the situation, that's going to have some uh, effect on your approach in counseling. There are cases where there's been an ongoing affair, sometimes of months or even more than a year. I had a situation where two staff members of a church, not married to each other, but married to other people, were carrying on for over a year 
that's a pretty serious thing. Usually in those cases, these people are making plans together. Uh, you know, they're, they're seeing a future together. On the other hand, there's a woman who was mad at her husband, and she meet a, meets a guy on the Internet and sends him money for a ticket, and he flies out to where she is, and they have a one-night stand, and he flies home. Uh, very bad, different thing. Uh, there are those who have gone into prostitution, uh, gone to prostitutes. There are, we've had cases where one party has gotten involved in homosexual relationships, either a relationship or, again, hookups, uh, going to strip clubs, massages, uh, phone sex. And then another category I will mention, and that is um, affairs of the heart. Had a guy who, again, was somebody he met at church, and it really fits with what Ian was talking about in the last session, where he's legally married to his wife, he's sexual with his wife, but he has no affection for his wife. And his claim would be, well, this woman I've met at church, we're soulmates, and we talk together, and we pray together, and we have this close relationship like I've never had with anybody before. I know I can't have sex with her because I'm not married to her. Is that still adulterous? Absolutely. You know, what, what do the marriage vows mean? You, you, you leave father and mother. You're joined to your wife. It's not just a sexual joining. It's, it's a, a uniqueness of relationship that, that encompasses that personal intimacy. And that, that's a violation. It's an adulterous violation. Uh, in some cases, it's pornography. Um, and so you, you need to understand the basic nature of what's going on. We'll, we'll get more to that as we, we keep going. And then there are two people you're counseling. And when it comes to the person who is guilty, and I've been using the male primarily because that's kind of the stereotype, but actually lately I think we've had more Christian women who have committed adultery against their husbands than men, but it probably evens out. Obviously, mathematically it evens out, but even among believers, um, it's become more and more common there. Um, the, the biggest issue, and, and David in Psalm 51, in verse, I think it's verse 4, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And the problem is not in a relationship between a husband and a wife. There are problems there, but that's not the primary problem. It's a secondary problem. The problem of sexual sin is a broken relationship between the sinner and God, and it's more idolatry than adultery in the sense that they've turned to sexual sin to satisfy desires that on one level, marriage is helpful for, but ultimately God alone is the ultimate fulfillment for us. Uh, to take one passage, which I think you'll hear again tomorrow, it's one we use a lot in Isaiah 55. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself and abundance. And so, you know, we're in a culture where sexuality and relationship are supposed to be the ultimate experience of life. 
And so a person who decides for whatever reason they're not getting all of that in their present marriage relationship, they go outside of it, again, into two-dimensional relationships or whatever in, in uh, pornography or anonymous relationships in uh, prostitution or affairs or whatever direction they go, there's this craving they have and they have expected from their marriage this ultimate experience that marriage is penultimate, as Tim Keller says. And the answer in Isaiah 55 is is their, their problem is not that their marriage wasn't satisfying enough. Their real problem is they weren't finding their ultimate satisfaction in God. And then they went outside to seek after that. And so when you're trying to help the adulterer, what this person needs, assuming they're a Christian, is, is repentance and discipleship. It's not just, I mean, obviously you need to break it off with the other woman and confess to your wife and we're going to get to that. But what they need more than anything else is a restoration of their relationship with God. Back to Galatians 6.1, if someone's caught in a trespass, you are spiritual, restore him gently. Uh, he's to be restored. Uh, back to Galatians 5.16, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. People commit adultery because they're not walking in the Spirit. It's not because of marriage problems. Marriage problems may provide a context of temptation. Uh, marriage problems may be an influence. But since we're all married to sinners, that means that sometime your marriage is going to be a negative influence. Uh, that you're going to be tempted to different people to different degrees. So the, the big issue is a, a broken relationship with God. Now, the person who has gotten involved in this, they've been living such a lie. And again, they've been lying, they've been living a lie to the spouse. And as we get to confession, the, the big sin, you know, Ephesians 4.25 says we should not lie to each other because we're members of one another. Uh, the big sin with sexual infidelity in marriage is lying more than sex. Sex is a great betrayal, but you're lying in that you're breaking your marriage vow. You're lying in that you're hiding this. Uh, you're living this double life. There, there are tens of thousands of lies that go into having an affair. Where are you? Where did the money go? All of this. Uh, but even more than lying to their spouse, they're lying to God and they're lying to themselves. They're lying to themselves, I deserve this, I can get by with this, um, I'm not going to be judged, I'm not going to be caught, I can dabble in it without being controlled by it and destroyed by it. And they need to repent of all of this. Uh, We've also had quoted, I think, by Ian in Matthew 15. It's out of the heart, verse 19, come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slander. So the the heart, by their fruits, Jesus said, you shall know them. And so the psalmist needs to begin with a repentance. The the adulterer, the sexual sinner, needs to begin with the repentance before God. And Usually, they're thinking vertically. Actually, part of their problem is they've been living as if God wasn't there. Uh, but that's, they need to think in their relationship with God 
confessing not just the act, but all of the sins that go with that, uh, they may need help. Again, in the hardness of their heart to understand the nature of their sin. Uh, an example of God working all things together for good is the adultery of David. I mean, it makes me really sad to study David and Bathsheba, but I'm really glad Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are in the Bible, aren't you? Because you have in Psalm 32, you know, David, in Psalm 51, David's repentance after his adultery. And so it, it, we'll have someone study this and not just read it, but you need to pray like this. And until you do, you're not repentant. And to work through in your own heart before God that you've sinned against him. And, but also just praying. And, and this is where you can't make him repent. And in one sense, he can't unharden his own heart. He's responsible to seek after God. He can use the means of grace of going to church and reading the Bible and to pray. But the psalmist has created in me a clean heart, O God, and don't remove your spirit from me. The adulterer needs God to soften his heart and not to leave him in the hardness that he's created by his own sin. And, and to plead with God to grant him a true repentance and a true love for God and a true hatred of his sin. Uh, it can help to go through, how did you get here? James 1 says, lust conceived gives birth to sin, and sin results in death. As John MacArthur says, people don't fall into these sins suddenly. How did you get there? Um, a lot of times, again, it goes back to their expectations of marriage and I've found it's especially true of women, but it's true of men as well, but especially the women we've dealt with, it's not this longing sexually to have these amazing experiences that lead them into adulterous relationships. It's being married to somebody who doesn't give you the affirmation and the approval that you want, the relationship that you want, and so you go looking somewhere else. And then with the relationship comes the sex, where... The wife says, look, my husband almost could care less whether I was dead or alive. All he does is criticize me. I can never please him. Here's somebody who thinks I'm smart and capable, and there it goes. Now, the husband has some fault in that, but he's not to blame for what she chose to do. Would you, you, know, would you tell her, well, she, her fault was that either I get this approval from my husband and this acceptance from my husband or I have the right to go somewhere else to get it because I need it rather than why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy when my husband fails to meet these desires I have I need to turn to God who in Christ fully approves of me and accepts me in spite of the fact that I'm a sinner and yeah, work on the marriage with the husband but I, I turn to something other than God when my husband let me down. The guilty party must fully accept blame. And again, as you're peeling the onion, uh, Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Um, David declares that God is justified in condemning him in Psalm 51. Uh, the excuses need to be obliterated. And that's where you can be helpful. The wife shouldn't be the one or the innocent spouse shouldn't be the one to do that. But there is no excuse for what they've done. 
the lies need to be repented of. Psalm 51, 6 says, you desire truth in the innermost parts. There is no justification. And so there's a heart repentance, and then there needs to be action that goes with the heart. And you're familiar in Matthew 5 where Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. Second Timothy 2, Paul says, flee youthful lusts. Proverbs 5 says, don't go near her door. These are all describing externals, okay? I begin with the heart. There needs to be a heart repentance towards God. But in addition to that, there needs to be action. And I'll even say this, sometimes the heart isn't all in it yet, but the action still needs to come. Okay, this person is still struggling in their heart, and this repentance process, this melting of this block of ice is happening gradually. But in the meantime, keep it away from the freezer. <laughs> keep it away, from, you know, that if, you're, if you want to be restored to God and potentially to your family, you have to agree to cut off all contact with this person. You have to agree to, you know, these conditions, these accountabilities. And right now you may have mixed feelings and you're going to have to decide what you're going to do, but this is a condition of continuing in the process. Uh, and then hopefully as time goes on, your feelings will change. Um, that may mean if you met this person at work and you work together, you quit your job. I had one fellow who decided to leave the state to get a new start. It means you get a new cell phone number or you block their number and you give back keys and uh, you, know, you, you do what it takes drastically. Um, I had a case again recently where a, a wife graciously took her repeatedly unfaithful husband back and just a very forgiving, gracious woman and he, he was accountable for his phone, but then he would call the other woman. He said, well, I was just calling her to apologize for all the wrong that I did. No, no contact, okay? The person to whom you have obligation is not this other person. Proverbs says she's a stranger who has no business in your life. The person you have obligation is your wife and no one else. And your, your sympathy cannot be. I mean, you've wronged her. I'm not denying that. You, know, you Write her a letter, show it to your wife, and mail it to her if you have to or something. But the sympathy, well, I've made all these promises. I've hurt her so much. It's a horrible thing, especially you're a professing Christian, to have done this. But the best thing you can do for all concerned is to radically amputate that relationship. You don't know anything to that person. And then to confess completely and honestly to your spouse um, the picture of the prodigal son. I have sinned against heaven and against earth. Um, and that means the spouse has a right to know what's happened. They have a right to know more than they've discovered. Uh, I've had people say, oh, well, that would hurt her too much. No, the hurt was caused when you betrayed the marriage. You made promises. You broke the promises. She has a right to know what you've done, and you have a duty to seek her forgiveness, and then she has a choice as to whether to forgive you. And uh, I want to work to that end. That's always my desire. Again, understanding also the, the great sin is usually the breach of trust. Uh, for, sorry, I think I could forgive the sex, he says, but I'm not sure I could forgive her lies. And that's again why the adulterer 
there needs to be a transformation of, of heart that the nature of being a liar is, is broken and is repented of. For some people, learning to tell the truth is like learning a new language. It'd be like I'd say, from now on, you can't speak English anymore. You've got to speak Mandarin. You've got to learn a new way of speaking. There's some people, they've been lying so long, and they're so good at it. But we're tired of it. The Proverbs says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. One of the most harmful things I've seen in counseling is when what really happened it's like peeling an onion. Well, this has been discovered. And then under interrogation, a little bit more is confessed, a little bit more. And there was actually a case that we were working on, and the innocent party kept saying, look, I need to know everything. And is, you know, is there more than you've told me? And after about a year, huge other things came out. And at that point, the innocent party gave up. Uh, divorce was the decision they made. And the tendency is to hold back. The tendency is to only reveal what they've been caught at. And that's where you need to help the person who is guilty to fully disclose. Now, when I say fully disclose, not in a way that is coarse or obscene, but the basic nature of what happened. With whom? Um, how often? From when to when? The nature was this hand-holding, kissing, fully sexual, oral sex. The general nature of what was going on were there commitments made in this relationship. Uh, usually people, especially professing Christians, are making plans with the other person, not just hooking up for fun. Uh, or oftentimes, I've seen more commonly with a, a woman giving herself to a Christian man in the anticipation of him dumping his wife because it's all over, she thinks, and he's told her. So there needs to be a full disclosure. This is where you as a counselor can really be helpful in terms of what should be disclosed and what not. And what I'll tell a couple is, as you're working this through, um, if you're not sure whether this particular issue needs to be disclosed or if there's a question that you think may be hurtful and, and not helpful, I can help kind of mediate in that situation. I find often that the innocent party will want to know details in excess of what is profitable. And they will often ask more and more and more questions, going into more detail, when really they've got enough of the picture to know what went on and to know what they're dealing with and how to move forward. And so you're, you're, you'll, sometimes you'll be in a position of meeting and say, no, I, I think we don't need to know this particular aspect that you're interrogating him about. Uh, that's my opinion that it would not be profitable for both of you. I find that the seven A's of confession from the peacemaker, I've got them in your notes. I'm not going to be able to go through them exhaustively. If you want to know about that on our website, I have a whole audio. Uh, there's a four-part series on peacemaking. The first one spends a lot of time going through the seven A's of confession. I'll kind of rattle through them now, but it's a great guideline of biblical principles of, of real confession. Uh, so many apologies are pathetic half-baked, excuse-filled 
and unhelpful. And I think what's great about this paradigm that Ken Sandy came up with in the peacemaker ministry is, as we say, not just mowing the weeds, but pulling the weeds. So addressing everyone involved. So when this couple was separated because of the wife's adultery, it's not just the, the husband, but it's the children who've been affected, the in-laws, um, the other person. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Not to blame your wife's inattentiveness or your husband's criticism or your own unique set of needs. Admitting specifically, it's not just sex. It's the lies. I've already said that's the big thing. It's wasted money, wasted time, uh, extra burdens on the spouse, having to take care of the kids because you're not around. Uh, the shame that's coming upon the family, acknowledging the hurt. This is huge. Um, Trying to understand the pain that you've caused and to say that you hate that now. Uh, To try to enter in (coughs) to the life of this other person, the betrayal uh, of not knowing whether they can be trusted. And, and again, some, so, I mean, it's when your spouse does this, like, well, what's wrong with my body? What's wrong with me sexually? What's wrong with me personally? They would be turning to somebody else and tempted to live with insecurity and fear for the rest of their lives. Even if there is forgiveness, how can I know if you're not doing this again? Uh, the devastation of it. So acknowledging the hurt, accepting consequences. It could be, I deserve to be divorced. I'm asking for mercy. In practical terms, tested for SDT, uh, sexually transmitted diseases. Accountability. Uh, like on an iPhone, you've got find my friends. <laughs> uh, been saying, okay, I'm not going to travel alone. I'm always going to bring my wife or one of my kids with me. And I'm, you know, anytime you want, you can call and you can see on the little map where I am and you can call and make sure I'm there. And I want to be accountable. And uh, alter your behavior, rebuilding a new life, asking for forgiveness. Um, and then... Again, the more I think about this, and it's not directly in your notes, what an adulterer needs probably more than anything else if they're a Christian is discipleship, not marriage counseling. See what I'm saying? Marriage counseling, yeah, it comes. But what they really need is a restored relationship with God where they're drawing close to Him by faith, knowing His grace, being immersed in His Word, uh, prayer. He's been an adulterer to God as much as he's been an adulterer to his wife. And what's going to save him from doing this again is to walk by the Spirit, to walk closely with God. And he may need just the most basic, like you're a new Christian, let's get started all over again. We're going to get together every week and we're going to go through basic book of knowing God or a Jerry Bridges book. And we're just going to rebuild your Christian life. That's going to do more probably in the long run to restore his marriage than how to help them deal with their conflicts, which may come later. Um, Briefly, for the victim, uh, they need to confess their sin as well. Uh, The fact, whatever they did doesn't excuse the adultery, but very often, again, the husband has been constantly nagging, criticizing, negative, never pleased. Uh, I can see how she got tempted by those who flattered her. He needs to deal with his own you know, anger that drove her away. 
or she was so consumed with the kids she was neglecting him, or the angry sinful reactions that occurred when she found out or he found out about this and saying hurtful angry things. And uh, he may be an adulterer, but you are now a murderer according to Jesus in terms of the things you've said and done. Uh, But also, again, to see, I've already said, to see their sin of the guilty party not as primarily against me, but as a sin against God. I'm trying to be a healer, a restorer. Uh, A huge question is, how can I know if my spouse is really repentant? Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 7, in verse 10, he says, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So Paul is describing there is a worldly sorrow that ends in death. Most people are sorry when they get caught. Uh, most people who get caught, it's like the most horrible thing that ever happened and they got caught. But what happens after that reveals whether it's a worldly sorrow or a godly sorrow. And I have in your notes something I actually borrowed from Wayne Mack, and we actually we have a worksheet we give sometimes to counselees, evaluate uh, characteristics of worldly versus godly sorrow. Is it a self-focused sorrow? Oh, this is so hard for me. It's like Cain, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You killed your brother. Oh, this is so hard. I'm, or focused on the other person is that I'll do whatever it takes. I'll wait however long. I'm, I'll sleep in another bedroom. I'll, I'll stay in a friend's house. Whatever will help her is what matters to me. Again, hating the consequences of sin and wanting them to go away quickly versus hating the sin itself. I would rather die than do that again. I agree with God that this is wrong. Again, blame shifting. Well, it was the seductress who got me or my wife who wasn't attentive versus fully accepting responsibility. Uh, I had one guy who was caught in adultery. He said, yeah, I I know I was caught. I really hope my wife divorces me, though. (laughs) You know, he, he he wasn't really repentant. Um, again, res- resenting accountability. Adult, I, 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 why don't you trust me? Why, why are you always asking me all these questions? Why do you want me to keep meeting with these people? And can't we just be past this now? As opposed to saying, I want accountability. 1 Corinthians ten twelve. Be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. A, a repentant person says, I did this once. I don't trust myself. I never again want to have enough rope that I can hang myself. Make me accountable. Impatient. Again, I want everything to be fine right away versus patient. That whatever it will take for her to have her needs met is what matters to me. And there are cases in which it's really evident the person is not repentant. And I can't give my view of things. And I think the, the innocent party in my understanding, has the right to choose whether to forgive. They can even choose to forgive completely even if the person isn't repentant, if that's what they choose to do. They, they can do that. Uh, but they're not compelled to, in every sense, forgive. In Luke 17, verse 3, Jesus says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And so my understanding is there, there's a heart forgiveness 
in the sense that this should be immediate, that in my heart, as the chief of sinners, I have an attitude of forgiveness to the person who's wronged me. But there's a transactional forgiveness which only takes place if the other person has repented, that mirrors our relationship with God. When does God forgive us? If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us. If someone doesn't confess and doesn't repent, they're not forgiven by God. And so, on the, on the human level, I mean, again, you have an attitude, and what I'll say is it's like you're the father of the prodigal son, and you have an attitude of forgiveness and that you hope she will come back from the far country, and if she does, you want to embrace her and forgive her. But if she's staying in the far country, you're not sending her money and saying, enjoy yourself there, that's all fine. And so, if there is not evidence of real repentance my understanding would be that you do not have to restore the marriage. In in Matthew 19 and in Matthew 5 and other places where adultery, Jesus says, you know, if you divorce and remarry except for adultery, except for pornea, fornication, uh, you've committed adultery, that you have that right. And my understanding would be you don't want to give up that right until you have a sense and a hope they're really repentant. A point comes when, when full transactional forgiveness takes place, you're saying, I forgive you, and I'm not going to hold this against you. It's, again, I had one case where the lady said, yeah, my husband committed adultery 20 years ago. I've decided to divorce him <laughs> based on that. The statute of limitations has run out on that crime in my understanding. My view would be you found out about this. You have a decision to make. My advice would be, if you determine that he is truly repentant, I would encourage you to forgive him as Christ has forgiven you, to show that kind of grace. But if he's not yet repentant, you don't restore the relationship and take away your right potentially to get away from someone who's still committing adultery, who isn't sorry for what he did, if, if that makes sense. There's a, a lot of detail to that in six minutes I can't really smooth out. Um, but there has to be repentance. And I've seen situations where, again, the guy, for example, if he's the one who's guilty, say, look, live with a friend, and we're going to give this some time to see if he does come to repentance. So we're not going to rush. I never want to rush to divorce. But while we're waiting to see if the repentance gives evidence of being genuine, again, ideally in, in consultation with the church leadership, uh, there could be a decision made in the meantime, not to be together. It, it's kind of weird to me to think that, well, she's deciding whether to divorce him or not, but they're still sleeping in the same bed, having relations, and then a month later, well, I decided you weren't repentant, you're done. So these are details. I think there's freedom. The Bible doesn't say you must do it exactly this way, but in my mind, what you're hoping is going to happen is he gives evidence of really being repentant if he's the guilty party. And she says, yes, I forgive you, which means like the promises of forgiveness is I'm going to treat you as if it never happened. This is now behind us as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more, not to be used against you. But you don't give up that right lightly if the person isn't repentant, would be my advice. If you choose to, you can. Um... And then finally, and just briefly, is that the restoration of the marriage is not the end of the counseling need. Um, as, and we've, again, we've seen 
many cases where God has brought a sinful spouse to true repentance, has given grace to the victim to grant forgiveness. And that's the beginning of rebuilding a relationship. Not let's go back to the way things were a month before this happened. But let's, it's, again, it's, and I'll often look at it as like you're doing premarital counseling. Like we're going to go through, assuming the discipleship and the relationship with God is being restored, I want to go through something that would resemble, we're going to go through what the Bible says about marriage and relationships to rebuild a new marriage better than the old broken marriage and to go on with that for a long time. Actually, one thing I used with this one couple, they've been separated for two years because of her unfaithfulness. We went all the way through Wayne Mack's Strengthening Your Marriage, chapter by chapter by chapter, together with them, um, to, to rebuild a marriage in which they know how to deal with conflict biblically, in which they don't let the sun go down in their anger, in which they understand their roles, and they have agreement on those things. And so, again, the process is, and as Ian has been talking about, you know, the ideal set forth in the Song of Solomon is that uh, the gardens we've trampled and messed up by our sexual sin, not only could be forgiven for that, but these can be restored by the grace of God. And our privilege as biblical counselors is to bring the Word of God, which is sufficient, the Spirit of God who works amazingly in people to see this happen. Now, this is only the Lord's work. There's no technique I can teach you that's going to make this succeed all the time. Some of these people we meet with, and one party is unwilling. Uh, the, the guilty party is still drawn to their bad relationship, and they never come to true repentance, and the marriage is irrevocably broken. Or the innocent party refuses to forgive, and you can't make them forgive. You can't, you, know, you, you bring the gospel to them, you plead with them, you're patient with them. Although I'll, I'll conclude with one little story of hope <coughs> that I had one case where a husband had been repeatedly unfaithful and in the midst of his infidelities to finance his infidelities, he had basically blown, blown through their entire life savings out of their retirement funds. And he Actually, when he thought he was about to get caught, he came to see me, and then I had him bring her in, confess to her, and uh, she was really struggling with this, and she was kind of continuing in the process, but the idea of actually saying, I forgive him, and I'm going to give up my right to divorce, and I'm going to welcome back into the bedroom, uh, she was struggling with that. And then she tells a story where in her church they had a Good Friday service, and she said, I was hearing the sermon. And when the pastor was describing how Christ suffered for me, though I'm a great sinner, and all he did for me, I realized that I have to forgive my husband because such grace has been shown to me, and he wants me to show that grace to him. And it's not a good thing to have your spouse be unfaithful. But it may be the greatest opportunity, and this is what you can tell the person, it may be the greatest opportunity you will have in your life to show grace to another person the way God has shown grace to you. Because we were all spiritual adulterers, and we have been restored unto God through Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, help us to be faithful to your word. Preserve us from sexual sin. Thank you for the hope of the gospel to rebuild what we break. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2016, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.